Corinthians chapter 8. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Gareth. Morning, everyone. Uh, in a TV show I used to watch, there's this scene where a woman watches a mother make a son his favourite meal. And as the mum is stirring the bowl, she says, you know what the secret ingredient is? And the lady replies, love, lard, says the mother in response. Uh, nevertheless, food and love, they're closely connected in my mind, in my memories. I imagine they are for many of you as well. We're back in the letter of 1 Corinthians. We will be over the next few weeks as well. And in this letter, Paul is urging this church in a place called Corinth, he's urging the Christians there to live lives that are guided by love, guided by the love of Jesus. And this love will build them up. That's Paul's big claim. Love will build them up into better worshippers of Jesus. And in this section, so from chapter 8 to 10, he relates that love to food. Not so much how to lovingly make food, but how to lovingly receive or indeed reject food. The particular food in question is food sacrificed to idols. See that in verse 1? What is an idol? An idol in the Bible is a false god, often actually made of wood or stone or metal. And so idol food is food that's been offered or sacrificed in honor of that false god. 
In Christian terms, that's a go- any God other than the God of Jesus Christ. So back in Corinth 2,000 years ago, a great deal of the food, especially the meat, was offered to Greek or Roman gods in idol temples before it was eaten or before it was sent it down to the meat market. And similar rituals take place today and in London. The obvious one would be halal meat, wouldn't it? So that's meat of an animal that's been killed according to Islamic religious ritual, offered to a God that's not the Christian God, and then eaten or sent off to supermarket shelves. What are we to think about all this as Christians? What's a Christian response to the food rituals and ceremonies of other religions? Well, this section, these three chapters, eight to 10 in 1 Corinthians, are Paul's response to that exact question from the Corinthians. I'm buzzing quite a bit. But by Paul's tone in these chapters, I think we can see that the Corinthians weren't exactly waiting for his response to come back. It seems like they'd already decided what was right in their eyes. As we read these three chapters over the next few weeks, I'm praying that two things will happen. The first is that we get a sense of how important these issues are. Both in the negative, how dangerous these things can be for Christians, but also in the positive, to see the good we can do as we make careful choices in the world and as we celebrate our own food ceremonies together. The second is that we would adopt Paul's attitude in these chapters. Paul uses this issue of idol food to try and teach the readers an attitude to have, not so much a rule, but an underlying attitude. And here it is. Love God and people more than your freedoms. That sits over or under, rather, this whole section. It's how Paul starts, verse 8, and it's how he closes out chapter 10. Sorry, it's how he starts chapter 8, and it's how he closes chapter 10. Love God and people more than your freedoms. Both the freedoms we, we might want to have, freedoms that aren't good for us to do wrong things, and the freedoms that we do have, which are kind of neutral. In either case, love should be the guide with what we do. Love God and others more than your freedoms. That's how Paul starts this whole thing off. Let's read verse one together. Paul says, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So this is our first point. Knowledge serves love. You'll see that we all possess knowledge is in quote marks. It's probably what the Corinthians were saying. The Corinthian church had a bit of an inflation problem. It's not their currency that was being inflated, but their egos, their heads. They would use all kinds of things to puff themselves up, to be arrogant. We saw in chapter 4, it was the 
leadership contests that were causing arrogance. In chapter 5, it was the sexual conquests. Here, it's their knowledge. Now, it's not that Paul dislikes knowledge. Quite the opposite. He spreads knowledge like no one's business. That's what the majority of his letters are doing. So what's his problem here? Let's see if this illustration helps. Think of knowledge a bit like muscle, something I know lots about. Don't laugh. <laughs> muscle is good and healthy, but anyone who's considered gym membership or been to a gym knows that there's actually two motivations going on for building muscles. One is to be healthy and fit. The other is to look healthier and fitter than the other guy. That's the difference between being built up and being puffed up. One wants fitness and goodness for the sake of it, and one wants it just to look better than someone else. I think that's Paul's view of Christian knowledge. You can acquire it lovingly to build up yourself and others as well, crucially, or you can get it pridefully to look good, build up, puff up. So this puffing up would look like not showing off biceps, but showing off bookshelves. Oh, look at all those Christian books you've got. Showing off not how regularly you're at the gym, but how regularly you're at church, or how regularly you listen to sermons online. And of course, not the rubbish sermons that other people listen to. Oh no, only the best, proper sermons for you. I've seen all this, and I know I'm guilty of it sometimes too. It's a real temptation in churches like ours that value knowledge. But it can be puffed up. The real motivation should be love. Knowledge is the servant of love. I think that's the point Paul makes in verses 2 and 3. Just look at those. He says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. He's saying those who treat knowledge as a way to show off, well, actually, they don't know. They don't understand as they should. But whoever loves God is known, same knowledge word, known by God. And that's the best knowledge in the whole world. Knowledge serves love. Once we've got that in place, I think the rest of the chapter flows, falls into place quite nicely. In verses 4 to 6, Paul applies knowledge to the situation of idle food. And then in verses 7 to 13, he applies love to the issue. So first, let's look at knowledge. Knowledge says idols are nothing. A little bit different to what you've got on your service sheet, but same principle. So let's, re well, I'll read verses 4 to 6. But when I get to verse 6, could you guys join in with me? Okay? Okay, so I'll read 4 to 6. When I get to 6, please join in. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, 
through whom all things came and through whom we live. Those are great verses to say together as Christians. It's true there are many gods and lords in London, but for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, from whom I came, from whom you came. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we live. This is true knowledge. This is great knowledge. It's based on the Old Testament and the New. God in Jesus has made all things, including you. And your life right now is maintained and sustained by God in Jesus Christ. And as such, the way we should live should be for Jesus Christ. That's Paul's logic. And it's good knowledge. It's knowledge to get excited about. And so with that knowledge, the Corinthians conclude, conclude, well, we can eat whatever we want. Whether food's been offered to Zeus or Artemis or the flying spaghetti monster doesn't matter because they don't exist. And in a sense, Paul agrees. Just skip ahead to verse 8. He says, food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. Food in and of itself is no way to get up or down in heaven's approval ratings. I could pop downstairs after the service, as indeed we will be doing next week. I could whack something up for a meal. It'd be basic because it's me. I could bring it up, put it before you, and no questions asked, you could eat it, and God would not think any differently of you. Not as less faithful to him, not as more. Whatever it is, Christians are free to eat. We're not bound by food rituals. Even the food laws under Moses have been fulfilled and finished, said Jesus. Ultimately, burgers, steaks, fish, turkey, dinosaurs, it all comes from God in Jesus Christ. But Paul has more to say. Paul has used knowledge for this issue of idle meat. Now he goes in verses 7 to 13 to add love. And love says, protect your brother or indeed your sister. Some of the Corinthian Christians know that idols are nothing, but verse 7, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think, it is, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So Paul's talking here about people who have just recently, probably, turned from following idols to following Jesus. To these people, to these Christians, and to their conscience, that's like their decision-making system, the idols are real. They do have some power. Now, the idols are not their Lord. Jesus is their Lord. But the idols, they still exist to them. They have some power to them in their minds, in their conscience. And so, given that, Paul applies love in verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, freedom, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. 
this freedom, this right that they have to eat whatever, well, it could be very dangerous. How? Verse 10. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what sacrifice to idols? So Paul, with the eyes of godly love, he sees something that the Corinthians had missed. He asks, what will your fellow Christians think if they see you eating in an idol temple? More to the point, what would they do if they see you eating in an idol temple? Okay, let's imagine ourselves back 2,000 years to Greece, to Corinth. So here's Alexander. He's a member of the church. He's been there a long time. He makes a big deal of how much theology he knows. He's got a boys' club where they chat theology over beer and no, you can't join. And he's figured out that idols aren't real. He's read Isaiah 44. And so, since they do such a nice beef joint, he regularly hands out, hangs out at the temple of Serapis for an evening meal with his colleagues. That's Alexander. Now, here's Yanis. He's recently given up lots to turn and follow Jesus. He knows Alexander. They're at church together. One day, Yanis is walking down the high street past the temple of Serapis, which is right at the center of town. And he sees Alexander reclining on the big stone couches they have in the temple courtyards. He's surrounded by people, and there's this proper spread laid out in front of them. Now, he knows that Alexander is meant to be very knowledgeable with Christian things. In fact, he's on the PCC. And he sees Alex beckon him over. Yanis starts to approach and hesitates. No, he thinks, this feels wrong. This feels like rejoining the enemy. But Alexander's there. Alexander knows so much. What does Yanis do? If you're thinking, walk away, Yanis. Yes, absolutely. And if you're thinking that, don't behave like Alex. Don't behave like Alexander. Paul says eating in idols' temples could lead to these younger Christians being emboldened. Ironically, that means built up to join in the idol feasts, which to these people is idol worship. So that's built up not in worshiping Jesus, that's built up in worshiping idols, turning away from Jesus. And that is a possibility that Paul will not tolerate. And he really hammers it home in verses 11 and 12. Paul says, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Paul makes this as serious as he can. He, like he grabs the Corinthians round the collar. He brings in the title of Christ twice, once to remind them that Christ died for this person, and wants to remind them that sinning against this person is to sin against Christ. Christ is so concerned for this younger Christian, not only did he die for him, but he cares for him still. Isn't it startling that with the right knowledge, 
they could do so much damage. That's the power of knowledge without love, the destructive power of knowledge without love. So in verse 13, Paul takes the point to his extreme and says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. I think he gets his point across. Love God and people more than your freedoms. Put their spiritual needs before your physical freedoms. What are we to make of this, friends, in 21st century London? There's kind of three levels, I think, of applying this to our lives. Firstly, there's this direct issue of idol food, eating food offered to idols, to false gods. So that's kind of halal meat or maybe halal celebrations. Then there's the broader issue of activities which link to false gods. So an example we often hear about that's often discussed in Christian circles is yoga with its Hindu background. And then broader still, there's any activity which could cause a fellow Christian, a spiritual sibling, to stumble, to fall away from true worship. There's loads to think about in each of those categories. And we can talk about it, we can discuss it. In fact, I want that. But remember the attitude that lies at the heart of it. Paul wants us to have, to love God and others more than our freedoms. So if you think an activity isn't loving to God, don't do it. Calibrate your conscience as best you can with scripture, and if you feel something would be against God, please don't do it. Whether that's going to a mosque for a meal, or eating halal food at all, or joining the yoga club, or whatever it is, if you feel that is not loving to God, don't do it. And even if you think something is fine and okay in God's eyes, well, still remember the second step. Still consider what others will think, particularly other Christians. What might a fellow, perhaps younger Christian, maybe a Christian child, think if they saw you doing or saying these things? Could it cause them to stumble? We spoke uh, with someone last week who was troubled by her Christian friends, she was a Christian, and she was troubled by her Christian friends doing yoga because she was from a part of the world where yoga was definitely associated with false god worship. How will our actions affect our fellow Christians? How will your language affect your fellow Christians? How will your possessions affect your fellow Christians? How will the way you spend your time affect your fellow Christians? Is it building them up? Or is it building them up the wrong way? Building them up towards worshipping Jesus or building them up away from worshipping Jesus? I think this is for you guys to think on and dwell on particularly for yourself. If there is something you want to discuss, I'm always here. Maybe this is something home groups could talk about in our prayer times or in our Bible study groups. But remember that key principle. When we follow a God of love, it's only right that we love God and people more than our freedoms. Let's pray together.
Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Our Father God, we thank you that you are the one true God. There is none besides you. And yet, Father God, we navigate a world full of false gods. Help us, Lord, to be guided by love for you and for others. Please would our actions build others up. Please would we love our fellow Christians. Please we want to do whatever we can, even if it's sacrificial, to serve them and build them up. We ask for wisdom in this area. We ask for help. We ask for forgiveness where we failed. Please lead us on in greater worship of you. In Jesus' name.